Come, follow me, he said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. So, news about Jesus spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever. And they immediately told Jesus about her. So Jesus went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and all the demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak, because they knew who he was, the word of the Lord. It's an honor for me to be here today. It's a joy uh, to be chosen, to be selected by Carson Reed, whom I know you know well. He's a good friend. I love he and his wife and his family. They, they're wonderful people, and he's bragged a lot about you to me. And to our colleague, Cliff Barber, who's also going to be joining you over the coming weeks. Carson and Cliff and I have met and prayed about this fall and about these, this sermon series and we're excited about this. We'll continue to pray and to meet and to, and to prepare to come and speak and share God's word with you this fall. Well, one day, Jesus went fishing for disciples along the Sea of Galilee. He comes to Simon and Andrew, casting a net into the lake, and he calls them and says, Come follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. I will send you out to fish for people. And they, and they leave their nets, and they follow Jesus. And if, if Simon and Andrew knew everything that they were getting into, I don't know if they would have left. I don't know if they would have followed. I mean, how does this happen anyway? How do you fish for people? With what net do you cast out so that people are drawn drawn to God. And if Peter and Andrew had these questions, then Jesus was about to give them a crash course in fishing. As they walked along, they, they, they get to these two other brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. I can almost see Jesus saying, okay, here's how it's done. Hey guys, come follow me. And they leave their dad in the boat with the hired men and follow Jesus. Now, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. In ancient Israel, Fathers passed down their professions to their children. So, if your father was a shepherd, you were going to be a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. 
Abraham's son Isaac was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd. And unless there's some catastrophe or famine or some great need, you're basically going to follow in the footsteps of your, of your father. And if your father was a carpenter, like Joseph, then you would be a carpenter. If your father was a priest, you were going to be a priest. There's only one profession, actually, in ancient Israel where fathers and sons, they didn't pass on the legacy to their children. And that's the role of the prophet. Prophets were uniquely called by God. I can, I can see this, this happening, this father saying to his son, Hey, son, you're going to follow in my footsteps. I want you to carry on the family business. And the son's thinking, I don't think I want the family business. The dad says, no, no, it's great. God will give you an impossible message to communicate to an ungrateful people who will prefer that you were dead. And the son's saying, can I be a shepherd? I... Well, it doesn't strike us as strange that Zebedee the fisherman has two boys that are fishermen. This is how things work. So, what leads us to wonder about is what kind of slanderous comments were made to James and John as they are walking off the job? Can you imagine this? I mean, if James and John, if the sons of thunder got their tempers through genetics, you can imagine dad Zebedee had a few choice words for these two boys that didn't do their chores, right? Or even the hired men. You're leaving us to do this by ourselves? Well, they were moving towards Jesus. They were making a move towards God. And there's probably not a lot that could be said by Zebedee if he knew who Jesus was. Because they're making a move, making a movement towards, towards God. My, one of my daughters, I have four daughters, one of my teenage daughters this past week uh, at bedtime was reading in bed. And I told her it's time to turn off the light. She says, but dad, I'm reading Romans. <laughs> okay. So, grace was extended, as was her bedtime, and I let her keep reading. Why? Not just because she's choosing something more precious than sleep, but because I'm hoping that the good news of the gospel that's found in Romans will catch her, like a net. Like a net. So, Jesus says, I'll make you fishers of people. And I'm reminded of the story of, it's another parable Jesus told that helps us understand maybe what's happening here. There's a parable Jesus told of a sower with seeds and soils. And so the sower goes out and casts out seed. And it lands on various types of soils. And on one hand, you think the sower is careless. The sower is not being very cautious. The sower is being wasteful with all that seed that some of it lands on the path or on the rocky places with the weeds or in the good soil. But it seems as though in that story, in that parable, the the sower's job is to cast out the seeds. And it's going to land on different types of hearts, different types of soils or souls. But the sower's job is to cast out the seed. In the same way, I'm wondering if the fisherman's job is to cast out the net. The net is the instrument in our hands that, just like seeds, it needs to be cast out to accomplish the purpose for its existence. Which leads me to ask, how are we doing at casting? How are we doing at casting out the net of sharing the good news that the time has come, that the kingdom of God has come near, like Jesus has said earlier in Mark chapter 1? Can you imagine sitting on the shore lamenting that you haven't caught any more fish all the while holding a net? I think there's a direct correlation between casting a net and catching fish. 
if we withhold the net, we prevent the catch. Well, there's another type of fishing that's done. And by the way, I'm really not a fisherman, but I'm taking a cue from what Jesus has said, that there's another type of fishing that was done in the New Testament times even. It's angling, right? And, and Jesus said to Peter at one point, go out and throw out your line and the first fish you catch. There'll be a coin in it where you can pay your temple tax and mine. And so we know that there are times that the fishermen would just cast out a line or use a net. And I think both are, are ways of fishing. And I think there are times we can reasonably expect with a net to catch a large group of fish. And at times we could maybe expect one response. But both are appropriate ways to fish. When these fishermen were fishing, Simon and Andrew were casting a net, and James and John were preparing their nets, and Jesus is going to flip this whole thing on its head. So, instead of preparing nets to catch fish, Jesus was preparing them to net people. So whenever we spend time with God or Jesus through worship or assembling together or prayer or Bible study or any of the spiritual disciplines, and we hear what God is saying, then we have been equipped with a message to share with the world. We have been equipped with something to share. But it's going to cost us something, and I want to acknowledge this. It costs something to become a fisher of people. And it costs James and John something as well. I'm thinking about them, how they left their family and their financial security and maybe even their friends. They, they left in order to follow Jesus, and it costs disciples something today. Think for a moment about a high school student. If you were to ask a high school student to become a follower of Jesus, it will cost them something, and we should acknowledge this. For example, it could cost them a position on a team, depending on their commitment to assembling together. It could cost them some popularity among friends. It could cost them some friends. It could cost them ridicule. And that, and that comes with the territory. And the same is probably true for adults. It would cost us something, an adult, to become a disciple of Jesus. Maybe it would cost them the, having to change jobs, or it might cost them some friends, or they may have to give up some old habits. But I want to make sure I communicate this clearly, that whatever we gain is greater than whatever it costs. Here's what I mean. Spiritual family, new friends, the assurance of consistent love, the promise of salvation, a better life now and life in eternity, the presence of the gift-giving spirit in our lives with us as joy and peace and the other fruit of the spirit, renewed purpose and a message to share with the world what we gain so much more than it costs these fishermen were willing to give up physical fishing to start spiritual fishing. And they were going out to catch people with the good news net of the gospel. The good news is mentioned three times in Mark chapter 1. The good news, the kingdom of God is here, the time has come. Repent, Jesus says. So, one of the questions small business owners might ask is, were Simon and Andrew in competition with James and John? for the fish to sell at the market. What if they were in competition? What if these two families didn't like each other? We don't know, and I'm just making conjecture here. But this might have been the first time disciples of Jesus that didn't like each other found themselves working together on the same team. 
And if it was the first time this happened, it wouldn't be the last because it would happen again as Christians rejected Saul's claim that that he had converted to Christianity. It would happen again when Jews and Gentiles were fighting in the church in Rome, when the rich were neglecting the poor in Corinth, when slave owners and slaves were told to reconcile as brothers in the letter to Philemon, and when Yodia and Syntyche were told to get along in Philippi. Church history is full of people who, prior to becoming disciples, they fought a lot, and they didn't like her and like each other. They despised each other. They were in competition and conflict. This is the way of humanity, that there's fear and war. And as the New Testament il- illustrates, some of this creeps into the church, but that isn't God's plan for his body of believers. God desires for the body of believers to be like a human body that functions together, that gets along, that has different functions, but they all work together for the common good. In Christ, we are supposed to be different. When you're in Christ, as Galatians 3.28 says, there's neither Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor female, nor male, nor female, slave, nor free. You're one in Christ Jesus. Despite whatever divisions might separate us, in Christ we are one. And we're a part of the same body. And we extend this hospitality to others, not only those who are in Christ, but those who aren't as well. We love our neighbor as ourselves, and we love our enemies also. It's what Jesus said to do. It's what we should do. Jesus said it. We do it. And I want to highlight this. This is one of the primary ways that we share the gospel, by loving other humans, both our neighbors and our enemies. We share the gospel when we uh, take in children with foster families, when foster families adopt children into their homes or take them in, when people of different races extend hospitality and forgiveness to one another, when older Christians mentor a younger Christian, when young people offer respect to those who are older, we share the gospel. When brothers and sisters live together in unity, we share the gospel. And I want to repeat this. This is one of the primary ways that we communicate the gospel in the world today, through our love, through our love of other humans. Love that looks first to the interests of others and not to our own interests. Love honors servants among us and treats servants and servers with respect. Love motivates the wounded to reach out in compassion for other people with similar wounds. Love compels those with the resources to act to leave their own flooded homes to go help others who need to be saved. Love sees that displaced evacuees and political refugees are both just people who want safety and shelter and a place to call home. Love demands that we act. Love demands that we enact justice and mercy. And, and in this way, we fulfill Micah 6.8. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to enact justice, to love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. When we become disciples of Jesus, we join a long legacy of people who served as ambassadors to the world. An ambassador carries a message from one land to another land. We're ambassadors in this place. And so the church is like an outpost, like an an embassy. We don't belong here, but we are serving here and bringing a message to the world. And this reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 18 through 20 that says, God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, 
And he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So we have a message. We have a message of reconciliation from God to the world. The message comes through us and how we love other people. But thinking about James and John and Simon and Andrew, it's possible that the opposite of what I said earlier is true. It's possible that maybe they weren't in competition. Maybe they were in a cooperative relationship with one another because maybe there were plenty of fish to to catch. Either way, Mark records that Simon and Andrew were called first. And Simon and Andrew were walking with Jesus along the beach when Jesus called James and John. So here's my next question. Did James and John see Simon and Andrew behind Jesus? And was that part of their decision? Did Simon and Andrew's presence on the beach make a difference? So I was on a beach recently, this past summer. My wife and I just celebrated our 20th anniversary by taking the beach vacation she's been subtly suggesting since our 15th anniversary. So I finally got the hint. We went to Mexico. I'd never been. We went to Mexico. Had a great time. I'm standing there in a buffet line at a restaurant in Mexico, and this person beside me begins speaking to me. She's in her 20s. She says, so you're from Texas. I looked at my plate. I looked at my clothes. I don't know what gave it away. She didn't know my name yet, so it couldn't be that. So uh, I said, yeah, I'm from Texas. She said, you're from Abilene. (laughs) Okay, yeah, I'm from Abilene. And you teach at ACU. Yeah, guilty, that's me. Okay, (laughs) hi, who are you? And she was a student at ACU several years ago. I never had her in class, but she was just on campus and recognized me from her college career, her college time at ACU. And you've had similar experiences. It's a small world we live in, right? And, and the connections. I even have two friends that didn't know the other was going to Europe and ran into each other at a museum. They're like, wait, wait, what are you doing here? Okay, so you know what that's like to run into somebody. People are always watching. People are always watching us. And how much more so is it true now that people carry video cameras in their pockets? People are always watching. It's a small world. And I wonder if that's what was happening here, that James and John respected Peter and Andrew maybe looked up to them, admired them. They wanted to have a business model, kind of like they do at their place. And wow, if they're following Jesus, maybe it was easy for two more fishermen to join in behind Jesus. And I wonder whose faith is being influenced by your discipleship. Who's watching you? Do you have any idea? who's been watching you. As Jesus offers the invitation to discipleship, at whatever point in somebody's life, they're going to consider the invitation to discipleship and you're going to be part of the equation for them. You're part of the package. You're part of the community of faith that they're signing up for. And so I'm wondering, are you the type of person that's helping Jesus be a fisher of people or are you more like a noisy tag-along to the fishing adventure that succeeds only in scaring away the fish? Are we helping or are we hurting the mission of God? That was scene one. Scene two happens in the synagogue in Capernaum, where Jesus goes fishing. He was teaching this time. He was teaching. It was his habit. That's what he did consistently. He would go into a city on the Sabbath. He would go to the synagogue and he would teach. 
And Mark records that the people had a response to his teaching. They were amazed. They were amazed at what he said because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And I asked myself this question, am I amazed by Jesus anymore? I've got to tell you, I've discovered that it's entirely possible to become so familiar with Jesus that you slip into a season of life where he doesn't amaze you or you don't think about how amazing he is. It's possible, and I make that confession. Who is this person? What has this person done? If we would stop and think, we might be amazed. I noticed a book recently that was on my wife's nightstand that had an interesting title. Uh, it said, Help, Thanks, Wow, it's by Anne Lamott. And I wondered about the title, and so I, I looked into the book, I started reading a little bit, and the author, Anne Lamott, says, I don't know much about God and prayer, but I have come to believe over 25 years that there's something to be said for keeping prayer simple. Help, thanks, wow. And I'm not sure when the last time was I gave God spontaneous applause for what God has done, but God sure deserves it. God deserves some, some appreciation, some gratitude, some amazement, some adoration, some worship from me, but certainly amazement at what God has done. So what amazes you about Jesus? What's amazing about Jesus? For these people, it was his, his great teaching. And, and while they're enjoying this great teaching, it's interrupted by a guy with an evil spirit, an impure spirit, who cries out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus says, be quiet. And the spirit's quiet. Jesus says, come out of him. And the spirit leaves. Jesus didn't quiet the spirit because it was lying to everybody. Did you hear what the Spirit said? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In one sense, the Spirit was speaking the truth. So why did Jesus insist that the Spirit be quiet? Well, as someone once said, you don't want an enemy or an opponent running your marketing department. This might be true. Uh, it might be good business strategy. But more importantly, I think that Jesus doesn't want his full identity known yet. Jesus wants to invest in relationship with people first. And I think something else is going on here. Do you remember how your parents used to tell you, don't interrupt when someone else is talking? I think this is what's happening here, that, that Jesus wants the humans to be doing the talking, and this, and this demon is interrupting. Or, you know what this is like, you're telling a story or a really great joke, and someone else beside you tells the punchline right before you get to that's exactly what the demons are doing. They are proclaiming possibly one of the most powerful spiritual truths of all time this world has known. The man Jesus of Nazareth is the Holy One of God. And Jesus is saying, no, it's not your turn to talk. Be quiet. Jesus wants someone else to make that proclamation. And it's us. I think Jesus is creating space for humans to have a chance to speak. It's our turn to talk. We have a message. We have a message of reconciliation for the world. But will we remain silent or will we speak? Do we have the faith and the courage to say what demons just quickly profess? Do we have that faith to say the truth and proclaim Jesus is the Holy One of God? 
See, Jesus orders the demons to be silent, but he invites the humans. He silences them and encourages us, saying, come on, come on, you can do it. Speak, say something. We have a message of reconciliation that only we can share. The final scene occurs in Simon and Andrew's house where Jesus goes fishing. We've just read about Jesus recruiting disciples at their work. Jesus casting out his first demon in the synagogue or at church. And now he performs his first healing in a home. When Simon's mother-in-law was sick, Jesus took her by the hand and helped her up so that she was well again. And there's this pattern. Jesus removes a demon from a man in a synagogue and sickness from a woman in a house. And we know that news about Jesus was spreading quickly. And so as you would expect, that evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick people and all the demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. Such a broad and wide and huge net. Jesus heals and Jesus casts out demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And the thing that Jesus desires most is for us to know who he is and to say it. People were drawn to Jesus. They were drawn. They were, they were, they were captured by Jesus because of his teaching and because of his ability to love them at their work, at church, at home, in the marketplace, wherever they were. Jesus made a real difference in their lives. I think we have that power too. Fishermen became disciples with new work and a new commission. Possessed people became freed. Sick people became healed. And the good news was proclaimed. Everywhere Jesus went, he was casting out the good news of the gospel. I think if he were here in San Angelo, he would be casting out the gospel up and down Johnson Street. He would be doing it at the university. He would be casting out the gospel in the grocery store, at your work, in your school, in your homes, and in this church building. He understood his mission like the sower understood the mission was to cast out the seeds, regardless of the soil he would land on. We cast out the gospel without making judgments about the quality of the water for catching fish. We cast out the gospel without making judgments about the hearts of the fish and being receptive to the gospel. We cast it out anyway, letting the gospel do its work, letting God, through the message, do its work. Well, today, God is sending us out with a message, a message of reconciliation that only we can share. You know, we're told that if we don't praise God, the rocks will cry out. But if we don't share this message of good news to the world, no one else will. It's our job. So this week, cast a net. If you'd like to respond to this message or the good news of the gospel, there are going to be shepherds, elders, and staff around the room and in the back who would be happy to talk with you and pray with you. Let's stand together and sing.